Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. There once was, when Herod was king of Judea, a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. So the book of Luke kind of starts out a little bit like a fairy tale, which is a little ironic, I think, because Luke's goal, stated goal, was to create an orderly account of Jesus's life and the life of the early church. But In a couple sentences, Luke has given us a sort of prelude to everything that's about to happen. This is history, says Luke. This really happened in this time and in this place with these people. The story of the scriptures is both a grand narrative that spans thousands and thousands and thousands of years, but it's also the story of individuals and families and villages Real people lived in these times and places, and we get a glimpse into that story. And today, we get a glimpse into the life of this particular priest, a man named Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, for Luke, there are three notable things about them. One, they have really important lineages. Both of them come from families of very famous priests. And in the ancient world, heritage was a great significance. Who you came from is who you are. Two, these are really great people. They're obedient to God and they're obedient to God's law. And three, they are childless because Elizabeth was barren and because they're, well, old. That's what they say. Storytellers of this time, they don't mention details like this unless they think they're necessary. They didn't want to waste the parchment that it took to write this stuff down unless it was worth it. And so what we're doing here is Luke is setting up what's about to happen. One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot, which is kind of like uh, drawing straws or rolling dice. He was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, as you might expect. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Thanks. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the Spirit and the power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. So this time in the temple is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest to light the incense, (coughs) excuse me, to light the incense that burns in the place that for the Israelites was the closest that they believed they would get to meeting God face to face. 
The priest would spend all this time preparing and cleaning and cleansing so to become as pure as possible. But then, the other priests would tie a rope around his ankle just in case they weren't pure enough and they were struck dead inside the Holy of Holies. To serve as the worship leader for the entire nation of Israel was a big deal. Remember that Judah is a nation under enemy occupation at this point. If you recall from a few weeks ago, Pastor Ben talked about the Maccabees and how they tried not once but twice to overthrow the occupying forces of Greece. And in doing so, they laid the groundwork for the Roman occupation. They have been occupied at this point by enemies for more than 300 years in some form or another. And you can see this in your Bible. If you open it to the end of the Old Testament, you'll discover that there's a pretty significant gap in time between the end of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the account of the four Gospels that correlates directly to the occupations of the Hellenist Greeks, the Hasmoneans, and the Romans. Scholars call this the intertestamental period. And while we have some historical accounts from that time, such as the burst of books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, prophecy which is the telling of God's truth for the nation, was something that had not happened in that 300 years. Israel had not seen a prophet since Malachi. And so in a way, this dwindling number of faithful Hebrews had not heard from God in that whole time either. For 300 years in Israel, God had been silent. So it makes sense that while they wanted to self-govern, they wanted to be released from their oppression, their greatest prayer was to again hear God's voice. And so an angel tells Zechariah, the end of this is near. Not only the end of your and Elizabeth's childlessness, but also the end of this time of silence. This son that you are about to have, this miracle of both old age and of barrenness, will be a man of God's mission. He will be the forerunner of the Messiah, the liberator who will come to free your people. He'll be the messenger, the one to announce the coming of God and the time of great joy, a time of great joy for Zechariah and Elizabeth and with their child, but also for the people of Israel. So Zechariah is kind of freaked out, not only because, I mean, come on, it's an angel, but also this visit from a messenger of God is something that they have not had happen in so long. And yet, even in the midst of his excitement and his excitability, Zechariah is, let's call him skeptical. Zechariah says to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. He's nicer to his wife than he is to himself there. Notice that. Then the angel said, seriously? Well, it comes out like, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you don't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. It's weird that the angel said that God has heard Zechariah's prayer, and then he talks about this coming of a baby. Because Zechariah would have been praying at that moment for the people of Israel, for their sins, for their safety, for their forgiveness, those sorts of things. So, Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. There's a baby coming. Wait, you're choosing to bring this up now? Here's, what God, here's what's happening. 
God's taking Zechariah's old prayers for his family and he's linking them to Zechariah's new prayers for his nation. The barren woman theme is a story found many times in the scriptures. In a culture that so deeply valued children to pass their faith on from generation to generation, to be a woman without children was to be a mark of shame. It's not for the men, since for much of Israel's history, men had almost always had more than one wife. But Sarah, Rebecca, the unnamed wife of Manoah, and Rachel, they're all well-known women who had been barren, but to whom God had given a child later in life. You know, the time when they're not really supposed to be able to have kids. But the one that we should be most reminded of is the story of the birth of the prophet Samuel. Now, Samuel was born to a woman later in years named Hannah, who was the wife of Elkanah. Tormented mercilessly by Elkanah's other wife, who had a number of kids, Hannah prayed fervently for God to give her a son, whom she would then dedicate to God's service if he granted her this gift. And it happened just as she prayed. Her son became one of the great prophets of the 11th century BCE, a prophet in the time of kings like Saul and Solomon, and most notably, King David, the king in whose lineage the Messiah was prophesied to come. In fact, one other really interesting connection here, the song that Mary sings a few verses later is a direct echo of the song of Hannah back from the book of 1 Samuel. And just as Samuel prayed the way, uh, prepared the way for and he anointed King David to be king of Israel, so too would this baby coming to Elizabeth and Zechariah prepare the way for the new king, for the king. Now all of this can be summed up into this larger scriptural pattern that theologian Justo Gonzalez calls the great reversal. This is a very common thing in all four Gospels, but it's especially prominent in the book of Luke. The general idea is that everything that was broken in the fall of humanity, way back in Genesis, will now be reversed. It'll be restored again. It takes the things of old and it connects them to the things that are now, that are happening now. We see this even more throughout the rest of the scriptures. There's these little nuggets where God steps into creation to reverse some sort of wrong. Barren woman give birth. A widow and her son are freed, um, are fed abundantly from their last morsel. A nation of slaves is freed. Things like that. This is actually the idea behind our painting that's here on the platform, which was originally created as a personal greeting card for her fellow nuns by Sister Grace Remington. Now, it's not that Eve and Mary were ever actually together. But in this art, we get to see the truth that God is reversing the brokenness of old. Eve, who's trapped by the lies of the serpent that's entwined around her leg... She's still clinging to the forbidden fruit, is consoled by Mary, who crushes the head of the serpent beneath her heel, for the baby in Mary's womb has come to change everything. It's in the fuller story of Jesus that we get to see this great reversal so profoundly. The one to prepare the way for Jesus is born to a barren woman, not to wealthy parents, but to poor elderly parents. Jesus, the Messiah King, 
is born to another, the ultimate barren woman, a virgin. He's born not to royalty in a palace, but to poor unwed teenager in an out-of-the-way village in an oppressed nation. Things are being reversed. Meanwhile, the people who were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. (laughs) When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. Now, is that the first thing that you would have thought if he came out like this? When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. I love that Zechariah has been struck mute. And they figure out that he's had this amazing vision. And he still has to go in for work for a week. We have to talk about this silence thing. It keeps coming up. The angel tells Zechariah that this is to be news that should cause great joy for Israel and for Zechariah's household. But the first words out of Zechariah's mouth are words of suspicion. How can I be sure? He doesn't say, okay, but that doesn't seem possible, like Mary does a few verses later. See, in this passage, it's the wizened priest who asks for proof and the innocent teenager who asks just for an explanation. It's an interesting contrast. It's another great reversal, as it were. Gabriel, the angel, was rather irritated with Zechariah for his skepticism, and so by way of proof, he hands Zechariah over to his doubts and makes him mute. Imagine only being able to listen for nine months. Maybe silence is what Zechariah needed. See, barrenness is an issue of hope, specifically in the way that it messes with our hope. Elizabeth and Zechariah had been hoping for a very long time to have children. But the older they got, well, how hard must that conversation have been to put to rest? How long had they prayed before their prayers started to get fewer and fewer and farther between? How hard must it have been at some point to finally feel like this is never going to happen? How hard is it to feel you hear your God say, sorry, but no? So often we hear God's answer of not yet, and we think that it's a no, because honestly, God can feel a little vague sometimes. And if you think about it, not yet really is kind of no until it becomes a yes. But eventually, the realities of the world that we live in start to take over, and we realize how little we can really control about our little corner of reality. Letting go of a deep wish, of a dream that we've carried so long, letting go of our hopes and dreams, that's painful. But again, the angel Gabriel is irritated that Zechariah would dare put a limit on what God could do. And so Zechariah is made silent, which now gives him the time that he needs to ponder and to accept what's going on, to wrestle with these preconceived notions of God's infinite possibility and care. 
As artist Scott Erickson writes, maybe the only way to receive these transformational doorways is through the gift of silence. The gift of not having to define what's happening, but to be refined by what is happening. We're in week three of this Advent series, um, exploring what hope can produce in our lives. In week one, we heard about the Maccabees and how they gave into their despair rather than clinging to their hope. Last week, we heard about Mary and Joseph and how their hope in God led them to be able to love one another and their child in the midst of some great difficulty. And today, we've lit the third candle of Advent, the candle of joy. Joy. Joy is a word we all know, right? But in our culture, joy is something of a situational emotion. It's based on our circumstances. We're joyful when we get what we want under the tree, when we get that raise or that promotion, when we get the good grade, when we hear that perfect song paired with that perfect holiday beverage. It's a thing. In scripture, though, joy is actually much more than this. The Greek word is kara, which means a sort of calm delight. But most importantly, Biblical joy is actually a choice that is independent of the difficulty of our circumstances. So yes, joy should happen at times of good news. But Kara joy is something that we can have in the midst of our times of annoyance and disappointment and anger and sadness. Joy is based in the hope that we have in the God that we serve. If we truly believe that God loves us deeply, if we truly believe in a God that we can trust, then joy is determined by our future destiny, not by present circumstances. That means that joy is not one of those turn your frown upside down or don't worry, be happy sort of trite fleeting emotions. It does mean that joy cannot be naive or uninformed or in denial, or in some sort of alternate reality or fantasy that deceives the self or others. Zechariah is not sitting here pretending that Rome is already gone, or telling others that there's nothing to worry about because everything is just fine. Joy has to be rooted in reality, but it's rooted in the reality of the larger picture of God's mission, of Jesus' victory, of the Spirit's power. If we truly believe God is making all things new because that's what God says God's doing, we can choose joy now while we're still waiting for the day that that does in fact happen. To choose joy is to live in anticipation of what God can do, what God will do, as God makes all things right in the world. Joy is hope embodied. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, boy, joy sounds really hard, I agree. We need to be careful to say here that choosing joy does not negate our other emotions. It would be trite if it did that. We've said many times here at Bethany that anger, lament, sadness, the full spectrum of human emotion all have their right and proper place in our humanity. Jesus himself experienced all of that. 
Simply because we choose joy does not mean that we can't also be angry at injustice, lament tragedy, or weep with those who are mourning. But as Paul wrote, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Hope means that our despair can be transformed into the joy in the midst of our connection to and focus on the God who loves us, the God who is making peace with and in our world. Or as John Collins and Tim Mackey write, when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable even in the darkest of circumstances. Joy is hope embodied. So a few days after Mary learned about her miraculous pregnancy, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard what the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What? they exclaimed. There is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. Awe fell upon the whole neighborhood as the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on those events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. His name is John. I remember when Liz and I finally picked a name for our oldest, and when she was born, we told everybody that her name is Aurora. Now, most were pleasantly surprised, but I do remember one or two comments in my family to the effect of, but that's not a name in your family or Liz's family but it's a nice name. And that was about as controversial as it got. Which is why I've always kind of wondered about this moment. The relatives want to name him after his father. But Elizabeth, the one who's been sort of adopted into their family as Zechariah's wife, wants to name him John. The argument here is actually about honor. Since John was not a family name, the relatives are worried that Elizabeth doesn't want to honor Zechariah or his family, as would have been culturally proper. The funny thing to me is that nobody's actually thought to ask Zechariah at this point. I guess after nine months of silence, he's just been kind of pushed off to the background. But then they finally realize he's there too, and they grab a tablet for him to write on. And what does he write? His name is John. Not his name will be John, or his name should be John, but is. Zechariah is saying, I'm not naming him. God's already named him. I'm going along with what God wants. 
And with that, Zechariah's voice is released from its slumber, and he begins praising God. Joy. Zechariah is filled with joy. The whole chapter is filled with joy. But you'll notice that the presence of the Holy Spirit in every single instance of joy in this chapter. Zechariah's son is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, a cause for joy to his parents and his nation. As we heard last week from the same chapter, Mary's son will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, a cause for joy. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth greets Mary with a cry of joy as her son leaps inside of her womb. In a passage that we'll hear next week, Mary responds to Elizabeth in a song of joy. The Spirit's presence is this catalyst for joy from all levels, from the individual all the way up to the nation. And to cap it all off, the chapter ends with this. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so long as we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Those are such big words. It's another sign that God is doing something new. Remember again that prophecy has not been heard in Israel for over 300 years. And wouldn't you know it, that song that Zechariah sings heavily relies on Malachi, the last prophet of Israel before. Zechariah had nine months of silence to think on all of this, to wrap his head around all the nuance and the complexity that Gabriel's message brings. As theologian and scholar N.T. Wright writes, Zechariah comes across in this passage, especially in the prophetic poem, as someone who has pondered the agony and the hope for many years and who now finds the two bubbling out of him as he looks in awe at his baby son. We're again living in this time of incredible uncertainty. I say that like we all need a reminder of that, right? But I say we're living there again because there's nothing new under the sun. The world has been through this before. It is a cycle of history, although that doesn't necessarily make us feel any better about what's going on. But so too we have all been through hard things, complicated things, unpleasant, even painful things many times before. And yet God continues to pull us through no matter the outcome. We can still trust that God will make good out of our trials and tribulations, that God is working all things together for the good of our world. We can tell one another stories of God's faithfulness in our past to help us remember that God will continue to be faithful to us now and in the future. 
no matter how bleak it seems. Joy comes not necessarily in what's going on in our present moment, but from the choice to focus on the fulfillment of the larger story of hope for the future, which means that choosing joy is an act of faith. God is good. But that doesn't mean that everything right now is going to feel good or look good or even be good. So that choice for joy will often be very difficult. Sometimes it's going to feel impossible. But when the hope that we have in Jesus is our focus, then in Jesus' birth and life, our focus of this season, we get a foretaste of what it's going to be like in eternity. Which means that even in the challenging, dark, formidable times, we can lean into the Spirit and choose joy in anticipation of that great day when Jesus comes again. Amen? Amen. Let it be so. Let's pray together. God, we lean into you this morning. For there's no one else to go to. No one else has experienced the depth of joys and sorrows that you have. And so, Lord, we lean into your experience and we trust you. We hope in you. And we seek to choose joy in the midst of our happiness, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our indecisiveness, in the midst of our uncertainties. Lord, help us to choose joy that you may be known to those around us. It's in your name we pray together, Lord. Amen.